Hi, Joe. Hi. What are, who's our guest today? We don't have a we don't have a, a guest, a principal guest, or or any guest. Uh, this is our sixty second. I did my little census the other day, mm-hmm. as you know. This is our sixty second episode. Sixty third, actually. Oh yeah, that's right. I know. We had episode you just zero. Up all the stats. <laughs> oh no, gosh, did I really? Gosh, After all your denominators. Gosh darn it! <laughs> now all my math is off. Yeah. All my maths are incorrect. Yeah. Uh, so it's our it's our sixty uh, third. Our twenty-first with no guest mm. since episode zero also had no guest. About a third, then. Huh? About a third have had no guest. How do you feel about that? I do think you... it's great. I actually wouldn't mind if we. Um, I love our guests, but I also love just the two of us chatting. So I wouldn't mind if there were more that were just us. I'd like some listener feedback on that. I, I also love having guests, both in, both in person here in the oral argument headquarters. And and with the uh, magic of Skype, I would like to know what it's like as a listener. Like, if you are one of the half dozen people who really looks forward to the show every week, <laughs> no, that's not, that's not. We have we have a great and expanding uh, base of loyal listeners. And but uh, if you're if you're someone who really likes uh, the show, do you? And you see, you know, you, oh boy. whoa, Darcy, what's up? Yeah, someone's home. So, so I want I want to know what it's like as a listener to uh, you know you really look looking forward, forward to the it. show and 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 you're sitting there and you look and Overcast comes up with a little notification yeah and you you slide it and you see the little description and all our show notes are right there mm-hmm. that's one of the great things about podcast apps right you get all yeah. the show notes there you can click on them really and is link great it. Um, and you see that there's no guest are you thinking all right one of the you know just the heartland of the show this is like you know are you thinking who knows what those crazy kids are going to talk about this week? Right. Or, you th- or, or can you not hit delete fast enough? <laughs> exactly. I, I wonder, I mean, I, do we have the right mix? I don't know. Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Let us know. We're too, we're too close to it. I think. Yeah. To, to, to be able to really to know. I mean, you could let us know on the Twitter. You could let us know on Facebook. Yeah. You at could or, let us know at by oral sending argument. us an email. Yeah. Oral argument on Facebook at oral argument on Twitter. Um, oral and argument podcast at gmail.com. Did you like the, um, Serial show we did a while back, you know, we you, had should we have more, guests. yeah, call in shows. Should we have, maybe we should have segments with little musical numbers. Oh yeah. You like that idea. <laughs> maybe we should have video. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> <laughs> oh my word. Um, it's, you know, what's great. Here's the thing. That's great. What is, what's great. Let's hit, you lay it do, on me. Lay you it on can me. Do the, you can do these things. This was so great about podcasting and, and video uh, podcasting and all this Lots of different people are doing it in many different ways, and and all of it can flourish. This is because it's uh, technolo- the technology supports so many different approaches. Let a thousand flowers bloom. Really is that what you're is, saying? It really is cool. I mean, mm-hmm. it's because different people can play to their own strengths and play to their right. own preferences, and there's no reason to kind of as there was in a world where there were very few media platforms. You needed to own. A, a TV studio, you were one of the few channels, or you owned a newspaper, you were one of the few presses in town. All that's gone in the right. sense of people don't have to be confined to those things. Right. You can do it. And so you and I can do what we like. Right. And people who enjoy what we do can share it with us, and it's awesome. Right. I love that. And we, we don't need a huge audience to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we just, we, you know, everything's, yeah. It's like a, it's a, it's a homebrew kind of thing it's totally cool yeah um 
I, you remember how I told you I was going to go for a run this morning? Yes. You yeah. Did say that. And that's why we were going to record at 10. Yeah. Didn't get to it. Didn't get to it. I got to find a way to get back. You know, I, my running's been really inconsistent lately. And it's, uh, of course, it's, I would suppose it's more enjoyable. I wouldn't know from experience, but I would suppose it's more enjoyable when it's cooler in the morning as this morning was. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I totally wasted the coolest morning probably when until we wake September. Up and it's already 68 degrees. Oh, I'm actually kind of bummed out by that. Oh, yeah. Because it's like, oh, the day is not going to be. Yeah, I'm not good. one of these happy runners who like gets a little endorphin boost and then you're like, oh, I, you know, I, I got to run. If I don't run today, I'm going to, you know. When I start running, I start to suffer from my very first step and the <laughs> suffering increases until the last step. <laughs> <laughs> this was even back when I was even, you know, when I was reasonably fast. Mm. Not re- I was never reasonably fast. I don't know what I'm talking about. But when I could run a long way. Uh, even then. Even then. I was, I'm a sufferer. Mm. I'm a sufferer. Uh, so so why, do I, why do I mention this? Why do I mention Because I, I, I think people tune in to hear about our exercise routines. Oh, sure. Um, or, or just our body pains. Because I can, <laughs> I can do – if you want to talk about my knee and my impending yeah. MRI next week mm-hmm. and – Arthritis and meniscus injuries. Oh boy. We can do it all. Yeah, we can. Though I don't know yet know what my problem is. I, as we get older, the show will increasingly consist of exactly that sort of thing. <laughs> Body <laughs> pain discussion. Yeah, the, the prescription meds that we're on. Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But for now, we're still talking about like missed opportunities to exercise. Yeah. Um, well, ask me, Joe, why, why did I not? So why didn't you run this morning? I was playing Kerbal Space Program. Oh, boy. Yeah, I thought I would, you know, write, you know, I was having my coffee. I thought, hey, why don't I fire this up? And Oh, boy, well, here's and, why not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I didn't, uh, I didn't get my exercise in. No. So can you. And can, I was thinking about this. but This I, is a game, yeah, right? Yes. And it's, can you say it at a, at, a, at a rate where people could actually parse your words? Sure. Please? Sure. Kerbal Space Program. <laughs> I love. I, long time For the longest are, time, I have not known what you were referring to. <laughs> Long time listeners will know that. I mean, one of my favorite things to do uh, for us together, you know, when you when you when you're around as buddies, like, you know, what what do you like doing with this friend, with that friend, with that? One of my favorite things to do with you, Joe, as a friend is to needle you. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Indeed. Um, (laughs) To push your buttons. And I'm so glad for that. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. Kerbal. Kerbal space program. program. How is Kerbal spelled? K-E-R-B-A-L. Put it in the show notes again. I put it in the show notes and the other And this is week. a game that people can play. Yeah. So here I'm, I, I'm thinking about it. So I was thinking this, this morning about. The episode about, is not going to be about this No, game. but I was thinking, no, no, but I was thinking about hobbies this morning and the role of hobbies. Yeah. And, uh, and I have, I have two thoughts about it. I'm a knitter, by the way. I knit. That's okay. My hobby is knitting. Mm-hmm. So does, uh, um, former guest, two-time guest, Lori Ringhand. Future guest. Yeah. Friend and, of the show, Lori Ringhand. Uh, world's greatest assistant friend of the show tina listener tina listener tina friend of the show um lots of people knit i I don't knit uh tina not only knits she also crochets which is another Mm -hmm. uh another uh fiber art or you know fiber craft technique yeah that's just crochet is just french for knitting right (laughs) (laughs) no i think i think it's uh french for hook huh but because the crochet is a a single hook knitting is done with two needles Here's what I was thinking about Kerbal Space Program this morning. Yeah. All right, so um, so, so this is a game you play these little, you know, you got these little, you have a space program, right? Okay. All the physics are basically correct. They're aerodynamics. There's, you learn all about like how to go into orbit. You can go to other planets. The sense of satisfaction you get from building a rocket and sending it to another planet and landing is just amazing. So it's like Civilization or Sims or so, these other things where you create. It's a synthetic world game. 
and and here the game is you're creating a spacecraft you're exploring space right but but gravity works correctly i mean and and okay. thrust and all that so it's it's hard to describe how that little thing is different and and i'm thinking about this in a couple of different ways so first of all part of me is thinking if everybody played this game like you would learn more by playing this game than you would by i don't know taking if if people did nothing in science but played this game from fifth grade to seventh grade or eighth grade, like people would be super educated about this stuff, especially if you did it with like deriving length time of the burn. So you'd perform like orbital burns and you'd change your apoaps and periaps and all this stuff. And you, it's, it's amazing. I, it's, I don't even want, I'm not even going to go into it now. There's all kinds of YouTubes on about anyway. So we, um, but, uh, so I was thinking to myself, boy, people, you know, this, people could really get a better sense of the, you know, I play this game with the real solar system mod and all this. So you're playing with the real size planets and stuff and the real physics, uh, uh, the physics are all real, but, um, and and so you actually like realize how hard it is to get people to Mars or Venus or something like Mm. that. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, boy, you know, this, this, I understand something about the universe. I didn't understand before playing this game, right? I, oh, that's I like cool. I really get it in a way. And in uh Randall Monroe, XKCD, right? Mm-hmm. I yes. saw just recently someone posted he did this comic Brilliant. about uh I think it was a graph of how much he understood orbital mechanics and he has like a PhD like like I do in a field, you know, a technical field and and um and it, the graph shows an increasing line of understanding that peaks around his PhD and then kind of tails off. He worked at NASA, I think for a little bit. Oh, wow. So it kind of increases then and then decreases and then Kerbal Space Program and it just shoots up like, (laughs) (laughs) not to be a pun, but literally like a rocket. Like it just really shoots up uh, in terms of his understanding. So, so that got me to thinking about like the role of hobbies and in terms of enhancing our understanding of our field. So even if you, if you're a lawyer or you're listening to this because you're just interested in law, but you do something else, uh, what role do hobbies like this play in increasing our understanding and our ability to um to engage in our actual field even if it doesn't seem related i remember in law school i think i mentioned this on the show before um during a certain class that wasn't necessarily my favorite reading the um descriptions of of uh objective c the the language of the iphone now but back then mac os 10 when os 10 was brand new Mm. and learning basically object-oriented programming which i'd not learned before that and I didn't get, you know, I'd never made an app with it. I guess I did. I did make the small app, but nothing serious. And I felt like I was really goofing off, you know, and I felt very kind of self-indulgent about doing it. And actually, you know, for the work that I'm doing now, and I think guess we'll talk about it on a future show, learning that stuff was a lot more important than what was going on in that particular class. Hmm. You know, I, you just, you know, I, I we mentioned this before. I'm a big believer that sometimes you hit a target by aiming at something else. Right. Right. And, but you know, there's a fine line between that and being just a total dilettante and never aiming at anything. Right. So what's the right amount of focus? What's the right amount of focus? There's another thing that hobbies can do, which is, which is profoundly, which, well, at least it seems profoundly different to me right now. Um, And that is, it lets you explore a complement to, or just a different portion of yourself and your, um, the way you like to enjoy things. So for me, the enjoyment in knitting is in part due to the fact that it is so unlike uh, the conceptual and abstract um, playing with ideas yeah. that is law to me. Right. And instead, it's very tactile. It produces concrete objects. 
It's a thing you make out in the world that you can see and touch that you can give to somebody else as a gift, mm -hmm. um, that you can share with another person who engages in the activity and they can, they can comment on it and admire it or critique it. And you can see the work they do and you can learn. Um, I like the fact that it, one way in which it, it, I guess, isn't merely complimentary, but is, but is like law to some degree. Um, I actually really enjoy the design part of knitting where you figure out the geometry and how things fit together. Do you have to get out graph paper for this? <laughs> um, yeah, if you want to make stitch patterns, actually. Um, and I, actually... I, I didn't know how much you had to like write. So I, to me, like from the outsider, from the outside, knitting has always seemed like a rote thing that you do that basically because you're re these repeated rote like, the, the like motions, motions like there release are a serotonin, small number right? of mo there are a yeah. small there's a small suite of motions that when you mix and match and combine and you can create very elaborate things very simple things yeah. and everything in between uh so it is true that the elements of knitting are few in number but they can be recombined and uh, deployed in such a way that they create very elaborate things and beautiful things. Part of it is the color of the yarn, the type of the yarn, the size of the needle, the thickness of the yarn. Right. So all these different things. And yes, you can use graph paper to make stitch patterns. You can do, you can use graph paper to do that. Uh, but there is a lot of geometry yeah. of how things fit together. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I love that aspect of it. And to and that is like one way in which I think about law too. Yeah. Um, so the, there is not just a compliment; it's a it's a it's a variation on a theme. There's a certain traction, which is apparent as you're doing it with law. Yes. Right. And um, but but this other yeah. thing of of exploring a compliment, the fact that it's a different that it 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 to me it allows me to and have more enjoyment in each that I do both. Well, this because is, they're so unlike each other. Yeah, I, right, and and you don't always know how things are going to. You know, you're becoming a fuller person because this is this. If something interests you like that, right, and it's not interesting to you for the reasons that heroin would be interesting to you, for example, right, that it's <laughs> binding with certain receptors and you want it more and more, right. But there's right. something about it that is that is attractive at at some kind of intellectual level, which can't be explained merely by you know um, some addictive quality of the thing. Uh, then, then that, that may be worth exploring, right? Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it will have no influence on your, your primary job. Maybe you want to have, and we can talk at some point we should do like a different conceptions of the work life balance or work life symmetry or asymmetry. I mean, there are a whole bunch of different conceptions of how, how much, what, what the relationship between work and life should be. Uh, but one thing that hobbies can do is they can actually make that work part better. Right. Um, oh boy. Getting alerts popping up. We're not wearing our headphones, so now we're going to hear, hear these things. I think I should have mute. Uh, so, you know, one thing I was thinking about with again with this with the Kerbal Space Program is how great this would be for other people to experience, right? And I'm conscious though of the fact that because you've gotten so much enjoyment, because I've gotten some, but that of course doesn't mean that other people will. Like, right. I do think it's a special case. I do think that it could be used in education where you're educating those things anyway. And that, that's something that everybody would benefit from right. is, as a school student. Right. Uh, but in terms of whether it would be enriching to your life, like, I don't, you know, just because it's been super enriching to me, doesn't mean that it'll be enriching to you because it may not be complimentary in the same way. Right. And I was 
reminded about my most hated. Hearing the way that it is enriching to you is enriching to me. But you're right that because we're friends. But but you're right that I might not myself if I tried to do it. I might not get the same level of enjoyment. I might not get any enjoyment, or I might get even more enjoyment. You might, yeah. We just don't know. It. It depends on which hole it's filling, right? I mean, what you know, one of the great things about things like that is that sometimes it fills holes you didn't know that you had. True. You know, and uh, and you're like, wow, there's a way of thinking about the world that I just have not exercised, and that this is like, you know, it's it's mind expanding. But the cautionary tale reminds me of the bumper sticker that I saw as a kid that I hated more than any other. Ooh. Just about. That's the hooked on fishing, not on drugs bumper sticker. I never Did you ever saw see that this? one. No. Oh yeah, it had a picture like of a bass with like a hook in its mouth and it's like hooked on fishing, not on drugs. And you know what I thought about, of course? I thought about relatively old dudes who love fishing so much and they're out there, they're fishing and, and at some point someone thinks, you know, if people could just experience what I'm experiencing now, why would you ever want to get high? Right? Because this is, this is as good as it gets. And so that's the answer to all of our problems. We bring in high school students who are going to be experimenting, experimenting with drugs. We bring them out on the lake. We get some, we get some bait, put some hooks in the water. Yep. Why would they ever do drugs again? It seems what I hate, it was so unself aware. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, two guys were fishing like, Hey Bob. Yeah. You know, if only the kids would get hooked on fishing right. <laughs> instead of getting hooked on drugs. Right. And, you know, you use a fish hook. <laughs> right. So it's like, it's so great. You're it, right, Bill. It really is. Yeah. it's, it's Let's it, put it on a bumper sticker. Right. You gads. Yeah. And look, I don't, I don't begrudge anybody of an attempt to reach other people with something that interests them right. in order to show them a different part of life. And, and, you know, it's, it's part of that impulse we have when we see other people suffering and you to now enlarge get, their lives and help them to see why they yeah. And you now be want to get people hooked on Kerbal Space Program instead of getting hooked on drugs. Uh, yeah. I, oh, I can't speak to whether... Oh, you want to get them launched on Kerbal Space Program instead of getting no launched on drugs. Yeah, I, well, you know, I'm, look, I'm not going to tell someone that you can't do both. I think you can. <laughs> you can I don't see why you can't do both. there a where you can go make your own, like, bumper stickers and stuff? Hmm. Like, you could make a bumper sticker for this. Yeah. And then you would be both Bob and Bill in conversation with yourself. Hmm. Hmm. Launch KSP, don't launch drugs. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with all this. I you just, you know, it's it's been so interesting to me. Um, and I, you know, I, I think more people should play it cause it's so satisfying, but, and it's not like other, you know, if you, if you're not a video game person, you may still really like this thing. Although it has a really, you know, it's hard at first, mm. uh, but it kind of guides you through it. It's totally cool. And, and, you know, I was just thinking about like, is this helping me? It, cause it feels like it is. And as uh famous people once said, just cause you feel it doesn't mean it's there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Who said that? Yeah. Look it up. Okay. It's a band I like. People, uh, yeah, people who should check it out. Or check out knitting. Or both. Yeah. Or neither. Yeah, whatever you want to do. Send us a note about something you want us to check out. Maybe you're just super into oral argument, and that's great too. Get hooked on oral argument, not on drugs. (laughs) Although, I sometimes suspect that drugs are the only way that our loyal listeners make it through every episode. Possibly. May make it better. I always encourage you to pour a beverage. 
Thanks for the coffee, by the way. It was quite tasty. Yeah, I, I, I realized when I was making it that I didn't use Listener Adam's coffee this week. I'd already, because we had another one which came in the mail, and I use those. So mm. uh, we'll get back to Listener Adam's coffee next week. Thank you again, Listener Adam, for the wonderful basket of... Zabar blends. Z- yeah, and... Um, and what would those things, which are, uh, I, I want to call them cronuts. I don't know what they were, though. What are those little things, those little uh, bready, chocolatey, cinnamony things? Oh, those were rugolas. I'm, I'm sorry? Rugolas. Arugula? Rugolas. Hmm. Not arugula. That's a kind of lettuce. I love that kind of lettuce. It is a lovely lettuce, but that arugula is, okay. not, is a pastry. All right, so let's get to the, all right, so that, that was my spiel about hooked on fishing, Speaking not on drugs and hobbies. Yeah, let's go, let's go to our, we're going to do viewer mail. Speaking of which, this was the last week of uh, David Letterman. Yeah, how about that? Do you remember Viewer Mail? Did you ever watch that back in the day? I don't recall that, no. Mm, that was the best. I was not a big Letterman watcher. Yeah, I was. Between 6th and 8th grade, roughly. Really? Heartland, yeah. Yeah, when he was at NBC and... Oh, man. It's when he first invented the top 10 list, when he Ooh. had the, the, the Viewer Mail, he read five letters, and that's when he invented the idea of the Pyramid of Comedy. You have to lay a strong foundation. So he would always say that because the first, he would do the first letter, the little bit, and it would bomb, not go over. And he would say, well, you're, all we're doing is we're laying the foundation. Oh. We're getting the apex, letter five. Oh. And of course, there'd be no relation to how funny they were and actually right. wasn't. But, you know, there you go, pyramid of comedy. He had Biff Henderson come out one time driving a forklift wearing, what do you call those little Egyptian hats? You, you know, you know the, 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 like the crowns that you see in like Egyptian hieroglyphics that they wear. What do you, you know, those headdresses. You know what I'm talking about. I do, although listeners can't Looking like see a pharaoh. the gestures you're making. But. Well, they look like a, he, so Biff Henderson, I think dressed as a pharaoh, was driving a forklift, which is delivering large um, blocks to form the actual pyramid of comedy. Nice. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing he would do. That is a friendly. So we have our own viewer mail. We do. And we're going to, we're going to do that. And, and then we have one other thing to talk about. Oh. Uh, yeah. Hmm. So let, let's do it. So listener Dennis uh, writes about the uniform bar exam, mm. mostly, although he's also concerned about uh, the uh, the death penalty uh, verdict reached in the Sarnayev prosecution in Boston, uh, wondering whether or not that penalty will be be imposed at some point in time, given that the last federally imposed execution was over a decade ago. Uh, in any event, uh, on the uniform bar exam, one, uh, and he seems like he's a fan generally, but, uh, one interesting question I think he poses is, uh, you know, the fact that different states now administer exam bar exams, um, allows different states to test on things that are uniquely related to that state. So the example he gives is Texas oil and gas law. I imagine there are states where water law might be a thing they want to examine on, given the importance of that resource to their state. Um, And so if all the states, rather than merely the 14 that have adopted it now, if all the states were to adopt the uniform bar exam, uh, what would become of those topics? Or is that you know, would it be a loss? Would it be a gain? What do we think of the such individual topics? I mean, to me, it's, it's... Yeah, what do you think? Well, it's interesting to think about, you know, so if you put aside put aside what I think is an, an illicit interest uh, that 
current members of a state's bar might have in making it harder for other people to become members of that state's bar. As an anti-competitive measure. As an anti-competitive measure. I consider that to be an illicit interest. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you simply look at the total range of topics you could test on, and if you think about uh, the fact that there are some legal topics that might be of particular interest to, to residents of your state, and you want, of course, you want the people who practice in your state to do well by the, all the residents of your state. And uh, you, as a current practitioner, might appreciate the challenges of oil and gas law as an example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, nevertheless, you might think, well, what people need to know about oil and gas law to do it well, they can learn as lawyers practicing in Texas. And uh, if they're not expert at it, they could refer a client to someone who is, or they could learn more about it and do it well. Um, And even the people who are here doing it might be doing it well or poorly. So it's not as if the exam, the fact that you managed to pass the exam isn't some statement that you'll do it well forever or even ever, right? So it seems like it's, to me, it seems like, you know, it's like any other topic. Yeah, you want to find someone who does it well, and you want right. to avoid people who don't do it well, and it's a challenge to figure out who's who. This is but how the, much does the bar exam really? I mean, help it goes to it goes like to whether much. yeah, it goes to the purpose of the bar exam. Do you think do you think the purpose of the bar exam is to put a floor on your substantive knowledge of what the law is in the state? Right, like you know, if someone passes the bar, then they know a certain number of laws and they know a certain number of cases and how they apply, and so they have they know how, what the law is in a bunch of areas. If you think that's what it is. Then you would be concerned yeah. about big gaps in in coverage of substantive law. Yeah. But that's um, not really how it – Well, it embeds a certain conception of what law is more generally, right? Yeah. And this, this goes back to that Solov piece that I sent you in the right. – by email about the, the, the bar exam as a theory of law, yeah. which I thought was kind of interesting, a little piece. It uh, is. Sort of funny. Yeah, and, and I just don't think that's what the – I don't think that's what law school is about for sure. And I don't even think that's what the bar exam is working about, what the bar exam is about. I mean, you know, to me, of course, law school is where you go to learn how to learn law, right? How to learn things on your own and how to, uh, and how to teach it, right? It's about learning and teaching because every, every brief and every, every trial, every presentation is basically teaching, right? It's, it's teaching your conception of things. And, and yeah, in so order to do that, you have to learn new to things. To a decision maker or to... Right. right. Or on your own, right? If you're a right. judge and you're trying to justify what you've done, you, yep. you have to be a, a kind of teacher. Um, and, and that's why, you know, you, you have to gain ownership over your, the, you know, the uh, certain faculty about understanding the law. You, mm-hmm. have to, you have to own that so that you can learn what you need to learn, synthesize it, and then teach others about what you, what you think. Right. Um, Got to make your own lightsaber. Right. <laughs> that's it. So, so I think clearly law school is about that. Yep. And, and in order to do that well, you do have to learn a lot about what se- about settled law and conventions so that you can speak the language and that you know where things are right now. But that's not – you're not learning that because that's where it will always be. Right. But by learning initial conditions and how things change, you can make arguments about where things should be in the future. And you'll be able to – when you learn a new area of law, even if it wasn't the same as when you were in law school, it doesn't matter. I mean you – you have reference points, you know, the kinds of arguments you can make, et cetera, et cetera. We've talked about this before on the show. So if the bar exam is more like that, does the person have, you know, whatever law school they graduated from, however they did, do they have minimum competency in the language and tools of the law? Right. So that 
they can do that, right? And and the way they test that is to test knowledge about particular facts about the law. But I don't think it's enough on the bar exam just to memorize a bunch of things, although you do have to do that because you have to put a few things together, not as much as you do in a, on, say, a good law school exam or in a good law school paper. It's nothing like that. But um, but it's a it's a broad area. To me, it's like uh, it's like the difference between understanding like um, the physics of geographical uh, of, of geological formations, like learning how mountains form and all that. Like it's kind of what goes on in law school. And then for the bar exam, you kind of study the atlas, so you learn like where the mountains are and how big they are and all that kind of stuff, right? And and you're not learning that because that's where there'll always be. There'll be earthquakes, there'll be floods, things will change. But um, somehow that all that together, like I have a good understanding of the lay of the land and I understand how the land changes, mm-hmm. right? Is that am I making any sense? So yeah, that's I think the way I think of the bar exam, uh, or or what the bar exam should be. Yes, I think minimal competence is the right lens. I think that um, it would be, given how much uh, law is about managing the fact of scarce resources, Mm -hmm. it would be strange, I think, for a bar exam not to have any topic on it that explored the way law responds to the fact of scarcity in social life, right? So I think it would be weird for the bar exam not to have any property or property-related or scarcity-related topic. But it is going to have such a topic. So it's not a problem, right? I, I, I think there is a substantive aspect to what the bar exam ought to cover. Um, it would be weird for a bar exam not to have any coverage of procedure as lawyers understand that word yeah as a set of techniques for managing disputes right yeah um but but of course the bar exam including the uniform bar exam does test civil procedure yeah right um as a procedural topic so i think minimal competence but minimal competence in what i don't think it's merely a set of techniques completely divorced from any substance right that's why i say it's more like an atlas right it's like you know you it's not enough to know how mountains form. You actually need to know something about some particular mountains. That, right. <laughs> right. I, be, because. You, and, and it's a way to talk about how they form. Right. And talking about where they currently are. And where right. they're, you know, w- and without the, without the knowledge of process, you won't know how they'll evolve yeah. in the future. So, so I think the, the, and that makes me wonder, given that I think that's the appropriate lens and that's how I think about it too. I do wonder whether or not there is anything, once you wipe away the illicit arguments because they are their arguments essentially about preserving an anti-competitive effect. Right. Um, and I think ultimately to the detriment of consumers, then I think, well, is there anything left? And if there isn't, then I'm not sad to see, uh, a state adopt a uniform bar exam because a uniform bar exam, which true will not have these topics, right? It won't, that would make it not uniform anymore. So if you, if, if the state really embraces a uniform bar exam and if all the states did and that that would maximize the national labor, that would maximize the degree to which the, mar- the labor market for lawyers is a national marketplace. Right. Maximizing their freedom to move to different places to and fro as they want, maximizing the degree to which you could say, okay, well, 
you know, I don't live here anymore. I guess I'm going to move over there and I'll practice law because that's what I do. That's my chosen profession. So I can go practice in that new place. Of course, I'll have to learn a bunch of things I don't know. A bunch of what I've learned already will no longer be applicable because you learn local things too, right? But that's fine. There won't be this this bar exam impediment in your way, right? Um, I think that would be better. I think I would... Uh... I have a real concern that these state-specific topics, yeah. water law, if it's water law or oil and gas or whatever it may be, I just think there's it, it's too easy for it to slip into playing an illicit role. Yeah, I, I, I have I hear some objections to what I'm about to say, but I'm not gonna, I'm going to ignore them for now. But objections uh, for me? No, from what I'm about to say. Cause oh, okay. I think what you, what you say I agree with, and here's what I would do with that. I think I would create something called the competency exam which you would take in the last semester of the third year of law school. Okay. Uh, after a competency course. Okay. So, you know, part, just part of law school in the last semester is you take the competency exam. Okay. And it is basically the uniform bar exam, but it is in law school. So you, uh, now the Barbary people are not going to like this. True. They're not sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> if, they, if they were to sponsor the show, maybe I would revisit this idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're uh, we don't is, have sponsors. We're not corruptible. Yeah, we we have no sponsors. Uh, so I, I think I would move the competency exam. I would make it that, and I would put it in the third semester of law school, which is is a kind of capstone course. It's like, hey, let's survey law. You know, yeah. let's uh, that could be the course, right? This is the Atlas class. Uh, w- one of the one of the capstone projects of the law school career, right? Is yeah. to Look at everything from the top of the mountain and see see everything around and and describe it and have some ability to. I, for for me, I don't. Did I mention this last time? How much I really enjoyed, um, at least until the week before the bar exam. I, I sat in one of these bar prep classes and and I I really kind of enjoyed it. Um, I mean, not enough to do it again. Right. Uh, well, you do see things come together in a way you didn't until that moment. Right. And it's and, and that is a fun experience. Yeah. It, it's another example of like hitting something by aiming at something else. Yeah. You know, I'm aiming to pass the bar exam. But one thing that it does is it, is it reinforces connections that I observed before and extended them between the subjects. Now, if all if if this competency class were nationally uniform. Yeah. And if you had in order to get accreditation. Uh, to pr- and th- so the way you would do this practically, I think, is it would be part of accreditation, and accreditation is a condition preceding to participating in federally guaranteed student loans. Sure, um, that's the that's the carrot, right? Yeah. And then everyone would have this course, and right. then if you passed the course, yeah, successfully, um, uh, you would be licensed to practice law. I, well, I would there actually be a further exam. Is I that- would make it a uniform exam, though. You would what? I would make the exam uniform. That's I think. what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. You, you, yeah. Everyone takes the same course and right. takes the same exam, and the right. passage of that exam, which is your grade for that course, right, um, is is the way you be. If you do that, you are licensed to practice law. I guess so. Yeah, I think I would do that. And then if Texas thinks, hey, it's super important that people know about oil and gas law, then I would leave it to them to say that Texas law schools, you know, a required course in Texas law schools is oil and gas law. Now, the objection that I hear, of course, is that hold on. So let me people make sure I understand. In, yeah, yeah. Let me make sure I understand. So, so the the Texas legislature could decide, or the Texas Bar Association. I don't know who. You know, yeah. Well, but this. Uh, so my pro- yeah. 
I don't think it's, I don't think it. <laughs> so there would be a separate national licensing system. Right. And you're saying if Texas for Texas lawyers wanted to have a further separate Texas licensing system. Right. Um, so, so here's what I think we've set up, uh, we, which is a nice, um, potential dormant commerce clause problem. Right? Oh boy. Yeah. Which is we, we've, we, we are, we're now saying that a state can in, in super adding to right in, in a separate licensing regime can set up a further requirement. Now that isn't quite what you did, right? Cause what you were talking about was no, yeah. what do they require to, it's not a licensing thing. No, it's the state of Texas decides at least as to its public law schools, and I suppose they could pass a similar statute requiring even their private law schools. To I think so. so. Yeah. Um, but uh, that that you have to offer, and you could even say, and and every student must take, I suppose. Yeah. Right. Um, this course. Yeah, maybe. Right. And um, maybe maybe the state bar could do it. I don't know. Sure, but what I'm saying is, that you 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 wouldn't have to re- have that as a licensing requirement. Exactly. Right? It, it would simply be, say, yeah, we want everyone who gets a legal education in Texas. Let's start there, okay? Right. Just to make it simple. Yes. Don't add the bar, please. Yeah. So just Texas law schools. Yes. All require all their students to take this course. Now, of course, some of those students may leave Texas and practice somewhere else. And, so, and some other stu- students, other people come will come in to practice yeah. Texas who never had that who class. Who never had that class. Right. So it's not a perfect one-to-one no. correspondence. But, but, then, they, could, but then, they could decide that. Yeah, but then a lot of states give reciprocity. Uh, it, meaning that if you pass the bar exam in one state and you practice there long enough, sure enough. Uh, you'll be automatically admitted to another Fair jurisdiction enough. if you move there without having to retake lot, the bar. And, and, so we and, already have that imperfection. And many Texas educated lawyers would wind up being also Texas law practitioners. Right. So a fair number you would wind up covering with that. Maybe rule. even uh, a, maybe even a very large majority. But once you say that a state can... I mean, the setup now. You're worried that that once you give that's a, like the camel's nose under the tent. Kind well, of if thing. you took the idea, I mean, right now this this problem exists, right? Yeah. That you could make the argument right now that the state law licensing system is a massive dormant commerce clause problem. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, do you, now, I, now the the yeah. the difficulty making the argument now is the nat the quote natural baseline that everyone would accept is. Wait a minute. This is like medical licensing. It's lawyer licensing. It's all state based, and there's a, a a sort of a reciprocity of disadvantage, right? Every, right. Every, everybody yeah. has the setup. There isn't a national baseline to measure from. Let me let me just break in. When you say dormant commerce clause problem, what what Joe's referring to is the the commerce clause of the United States Constitution, which gives Congress the authority to regulate interstate commerce and foreign commerce and some other things as one of the uh, enumerated powers that Congress has. And it has been held by the Supreme Court that implicit in this uh, implicit because it's dormant, it's not explicit, implicit in this grant of power to Congress to regulate interstate commerce is a taking away from the states of an ability on their own to regulate or to impede interstate commerce. Now, another way to say it would be um, the the Constitution's uh, grant of that power to Congress is um, a manifestation of the Constitution's creation of a presumptive free trade zone called the United States. Of right. But that's I'm just trying. Yeah, I was going to get there. I, I, part of it comes from our experience with the Articles of Confederation and people Which were a disaster, a, a disaster, on disaster <laughs> exactly on this front. Right. And so right. the thinking was, I guess, and I'm not an expert in this, although I am working on a 
on uh, on an idea involving the dormant commerce clause a little bit, although it's not the focus. Uh, the idea is like if the Constitution was meant to do anything, it was meant to get rid of all these fees and tariffs and things that states were you know, to create this free trade zone. And one way of accomplishing that apparent goal of the Constitution is to read this grant of power to Congress as in a way exclusive, even though we wouldn't normally do that with other grants of power to Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, other grants of power to Congress are not read to be exclusive. Instead, we use what is it, the Tenth Amendment, right, which gives the, uh, uh, the powers reserved to the states, which aren't you know, which aren't taken away by the Constitution. So the the, the dormant commerce clause, it's you know, there's some there's a recent Supreme Court case about it. We won't talk about it now. It's um, recent as in this week. Yeah. It, there's an unusual kind of lineup of income tax. Yeah. And, an yeah. unusual lineup of ideologies on each side of this thing. Some of them think there is no such th- there should be no such thing as the dormant commerce clause. Right. Some think there should be. And uh, so it's a rather complicated idea. You're using that term just to stand in for the idea that there's a problem in terms of this free trade idea that these that states are using these licensing schemes as a weapon to keep out to advantage people within the state and to keep out competition from outside the state. Right. Yeah. Ooh, all right. Should we now that this is letter number one. This is just the foundation of the pyramid of <laughs> Yes. Uh, yes. Should we I think we can go on from here. Thank he, you to lis- listener Dennis. Loyal yeah. listener Dennis. Uh listener Patrick, um a first time writer to mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Long time listener, first time caller. Yeah. Uh he uh took the Virginia Bar exam. Wow. And we can congratulate Patrick on passing it uh, the, the time he took it, unlike me. Did he pass it? He passed it on his first wow. try, he said. Wow. Um, maybe, I, so I, maybe, I think that automatically means he gets to do the show from now on. Yes. This yeah. is my swan song. <laughs> so long, Joe. Hello, Patrick. Um, I failed the Virginia bar. And we shouldn't say I, I failed it on my first try. I failed it on my one and only try because I never tried to take it again. I took Maryland right. next. Then I took Illinois. You were surprised to learn that. I was surprised morning. to take that you're a serial. You're, you're not a bar monogamist. <laughs> I am not. Um, <laughs> I, am, um, uh, I am a bar bigamist. Um, yeah, a bar polyamorist. Mm, you love bars. Yes. Yeah. And, and uh, I think the best available evidence, though, is that you failed the Virginia bar exam because of the funny shoes that you wore. Yes. Or because of your otherwise, like, you stuck out probably to people observing as someone who would just never quite fit into the Although he the said, club. he yes. says so, that the, that the, the, the rule was that they were, they were told not to wear dress shoes so that I was actually conforming. Right. Which is disappointing. <laughs> anyway. My, <laughs> and, and that was for a particular reason, right? So they want you to dress. So this is well, the, the shoes back was to last. so that you wouldn't make noise. Yeah. So, that, the, so that for soft, people who didn't re- listen to last episode, yes, the Virginia bar has a policy that if you come to take the Virginia bar exam, you got to dress up in one of these like we're, we're going to link to this in the one show of these right. fancy costumes. Derek, the suit for suit and tie for men. Yes, it's what, called the Virginia bar cosplay requirement, <laughs> and you have to <laughs> you have to dress as Thomas Jefferson or one of the people he owned. Oh my gosh! And one of those two. It has to be one of those two. Oh my gosh! That's who he was surrounded by. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Most of the people in his daily experience were people he owned. Yeah, it's they, not my fault. Yeah, that he he. You that, look that at he, me like I said something yeah, bad. It's the truth that he thought he owned. That other people thought of him as owning. Anyway, but yes. we're not going to get into that. But so. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it it is basically a cosplay requirement because you're required to dress in something that you wouldn't um, uh, that you wouldn't normally dress up in, uh, and they say you know it should be. I guess originally it was like you're going to court, 
Uh, well, go ahead. Is, yeah, yeah. Listener Patrick, yeah, who returned the email. Uh, Letter number two. He, <laughs> so Derek, no, we got to go back to last week again. Oh, so boy. Derek read to us from the current Virginia bar exam website. Linked it up in the show notes last, and week. we should yeah. link it again. Okay. And it was phrased in this particular way right. about proper business attire or, you know, uh, phrases, uh, phrases like that, proper attire, uh, proper business attire, something like that. Patrick reports that when he took the exam, his recollection is it was said that he should simply dress in a manner suitable for an appearance in a court of record in the Commonwealth. Okay. Uh, but this is the phrase that's sticking in his mind, right? Quote, in a manner suitable for an appearance in a court of record in the Commonwealth. And so one question is, is this more or less vague yeah. than the phrase proper business attire? Now, I don't know if he, is he reporting that that was the rule at the time? That, that's his recollection yeah. of the operative language. Because, of course, we, now we know that, that the whole rule starts with this preamble about how we know that that basically standards have been slipping at law firms and people are wearing gym suits into law firms now. But <laughs> but that's not what we're talking about, they say. We're talking about old school dress up like you're going to go to court. Right. Um, so that, that preamble is in there now and the whole thing. I, to me, it's all a huge mess. Yes. Uh, but, but of course, we know from D.C. against Heller that preambular language is of no moment in interpreting at least constitutional provisions yeah. about packing Well, I, I see that language in there because probably this this whole idea was under assault at some point by saying, look, people at big firms don't dress up in suits every day. They dress in more or less kind of regular clothes. And, and Although, right, which doesn't mean they're either in bike shorts or dressing like Polly Walnuts from The Sopranos. <laughs> That's a deep cut. That's a deep cut. Um, <laughs> uh, so, bike shorts, huh? I, that's one possibility that I think would not be particularly appropriate for bar exam taking. It could be. It would be interesting. Yeah, there, there is all this research about like doing better when you're exercising. So maybe you have stationary bikes that you could do your oh, bar yeah, exam on. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so get to the crux of this, Joe. What are we? What are we? What are we <laughs> gonna? I don't. I'm, I'm not Judge John Hodgman is the crux finder. <laughs> I'm not true. the crux finder. Well, what is it? We got to get to he, it. You're speechless. I think his main, I'm a little confounded, but I think his main point is that the phrase, it might be less vague to say. And, and let's be to, clear. To require that yeah. student, that, that the bar, that someone who's taking the bar dress in a manner that is suitable for an appearance in a court of record in the yeah, state. Yeah. I think that, that, I, that strikes me as less vague. And, and at the same time, he says that his memory, he also included in his letter, as you mentioned, that they were asked not to wear those loud shoes. Right. Not to, they were asked. To, uh, they were told not to wear dress shoes. Right, realizing that that would be a departure from the from the requirement of wearing business attire, but to comply with that would be distracting to the extent that your shoes made noise when walking. Yes. Right, and so and that on the and that soft soled shoes wouldn't make noise. Although one has to break in and say, look, sneakers can make lots of noise depending on the nature of the flooring. Flip flops. Sneakers can mm -hmm. make lots of noise, yeah, of course, depending yeah. on what the flooring is like. And I and I was just saying, also like flip flops can make lots of noise. And um, yeah, but that's not really depending on the nature of the flooring. That's about mm -hmm. the dynamics of the flipping and flopping of the sole of the shoe against. Oh, so the you're foot. saying you're saying that um, that perhaps Virginia had two options to solve this: to have the bar exam taken in a room with like a foam floor, 
Oh. And then they could stick with their – so there are kind of two principles here which are opposed in their minds, right? One is this principle of professionalism and fitting into an elite by wearing clothes which signify membership in that traditional elite. Mm-hmm. And secondly, a principle of non-distraction. And, and to them, like wearing I, business attire is, it has, serves the, the, the positive goal of, uh, of both, right? It satisfies both principles except in this one area. The where the clickety-clack of these uh, yeah. business shoes. Here's what I think they should have done. What they should do is they should require that you wear uh, clothing uh, suitable for an appearance in a court of record in the Commonwealth of Virginia, including shoes, but that, in addition, uh, at least one inch of latex foam <laughs> be affixed to the bottom of one's shoes. <laughs> And that way, the shoes would not make noise. No, let's, let's, you know, I don't want to be, so, I think. And finally. Yeah, all right. That in order to prevent noise being made when one uh, sits down in a chair, that at least an inch of latex foam should be affixed to one's posterior, one's bum, Mm -hmm. so that as you sat in the chair, it would simply be foam. Bum, of course, being a powdered wig term for butt, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, your, I, your posterior let's say what analytics. we actually think here. What we mm-hmm. actually think is that Virginia should just ditch this dumb rule. Unless, unless it can point to the experience, you know. The non-distraction point, I think, mm-hmm. is a non-trivial concern. Of course. And so have the other states. <clears throat> um, has there been chaos in the other 49 states plus Well, we don't know what they're doing. So we the don't other know. states might have dress rules we, haven't, we simply haven't referred to. We've, we haven't run into them. Uh, you know, I certainly didn't run into that in Connecticut. I've never heard about people having to dress in suits in other jurisdictions. It doesn't mean that they don't have to. Exist. Or, or, or maybe they have to wear uh, cummerbunds. Right. Um, maybe they have to wear, everybody has to wear high heels. Right. Man or, man or woman. I, there could, we don't know what's out there, right? So number one, listeners. If you had a dress code or were told to dress in a particular way at a bar exam, let us know about that if it's yes. not Virginia. Does the state of Hawaii require all bar exam takers to wear a floral garland? I don't know. I would think not. It would smell nice. <laughs> I, I get, it depends on the flower, right? So, that, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to get down to specifying that. But yes. what, so does the state of Iowa require all bar exam takers to wear a garland of corn? <laughs> now that's it's possible. That that's just racist, Joe. What against Iowans? Iowa is not a race. <laughs> what are you talking I, about? I don't even know anymore. I don't even know anymore. Good lord! I know, but. Uh, Look, I've not heard of any, you know, I, it's not like after every bar exam, there's the, someone has a report, you know, here's the usual rash of people showing up in thongs and distracting <laughs> and distracting. Right, flip-flops, yeah. bike shorts, and a t-shirt that says, fuck all y'all. No, no. You can bleep it out. I, I know. Though you shouldn't. Oh, I know I can. Hmm? I know I can, and now you I have You shouldn't, though, because that, that swear actually was critical to communicating the idea that I was trying to communicate, which is that it would be distracting to other people for someone to be wearing a shirt that said that. But you should leave that in. Yeah, well, you know. Much like the Cohen against California case. I right? know, but think about the kids. Think about the children, Joe. Uh, <laughs> I love doing this show with you. But I. So anyway, I haven't heard about all these things. I haven't heard of, that this is a huge problem elsewhere. I doubt that that's 
I doubt that the principle of non-distraction is sufficiently weighty on its own to make so everybody dress like this. So I think it's the other principle which is driving this. And one way to test whether which it's is the, and what's the other principle? The again? other principle is 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 dressing up like in uh, what uh, like some and, people's conception of the elite membership of the bar. And you think that's what's driving it in Virginia? I, I do. Is that they are they are either consciously or or unconsciously uh, overly attached to a crabbed notion of an elite. Yes. And they want to induct people into it as quickly as possible. And this is a particularly juicy opportunity yeah, to do so. Exactly. It's a, under the, under the, under the guise of professionalism or that is the umbrella term dress up like, you know, conform to, uh, the elite's expectation of how you should look, which signifies that you are professional it signifies this special status do this and that's the main because if it's non-distraction then we could go to the states that don't have this rule and find out there's a lot of problems that virginia is actually avoiding right. and i now, doubt pa- that's the now case. listener patrick suggests that one thing it that he personally found helpful is that it helped him sort of treat it with a kind of seriousness that he might not otherwise have treated it. And that for him, that was a good thing. Yeah, I I I saw that. that. I like that he, that that was a good that he reported for himself, that it was a way to take it more seriously and that that played a positive role for him. Yeah, and this is something that, um, that, you know, speaking of what we were talking about at the beginning of the show about seeing things through other people's eyes and and people gathering meaning from from different sources, right? That Mm -hmm. I understand that, that for... This isn't true of me. I mean, I just, I know myself and, and, and I don't feel differently if I dress up differently. It doesn't, you know, maybe I don't know, you know, maybe you could study me and you find out I actually do and I perform differently depending on how I'm dressed. I don't know. Right. Uh, it certainly is nothing that, um, that interests me. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, we do dress differently to signify importance of certain kinds of occasions, you know, sure. regalia, graduations. Right. Uh, dressing up to go to uh, a religious worship service of some kind, sure. uh, dressing up to appear in court. I mean, there, our dress can signify a certain kind of dignity for the occasion. Yeah. And um, it's – I don't like that idea. <laughs> I, 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 um, partly because – Why don't you – that's interesting that you don't like well, it. That pe- I think it's – I think it is um, – I think it is a good thing that different occasions have different emotional content. And I think it's um, a fun and good thing that one of the ways we experience that emotional content is with these outward physical I get manifestations. It. I get it. I mean, it, that there, is a, there is a non-trivial aspect to superficial signifying of your feelings about something. And there's something about like a, a communal signification a feeling through a super because you can't do that in a deep way right it's not like you can have deep conversations right. with 100 people but by all manifesting the same superficial significance but it's through actually dress, part of the same it's part of the same conversation as you've said right. it's a signifier right it's a signal so you are communicating right now that if, um, if you're that, communicating right. your participation in this group activity which right. has a has a a you're, you're, it's a community feeling. You're experiencing one another as members coming together in a community. Right. And I think that's positive. I think it can, it can be, it can be, and it can be very negative, right? It depends yes. on whether, it depends on whether the, it can be a way to punish and exclude. Right. And it, of um, inducing conformity where it shouldn't exist. I mean, uh, stamping out what otherwise might be healthy nonconformity. Right. But, but there's also the gender aspect. 
and the other kinds of in-group and out-group aspects to it, right? That, and I think in the Virginia, Virginia needs to think about this. You know, I think any rule where you say for men this means X and for women this means Y is a rule you should think about really, really hard, right, if you want to keep it. Because I think those rules should generally be pulled out wherever they're found, right? And, and so we have to think about, like, what does the traditional costume of the elite lawyer look like in the minds of some, right? And, and it's a gendered thing, right? For, for men, it means this. For women, it means that. And look, I, that may, you know, there's a certain part of this is, which is reflective of the idea that men and women, even today, wear very different things. And people think that this is harmless and, you know, that they just dress differently. Uh, many women have preferences about appearance that many men don't have or there's significant overlap. Uh, you're not going to. And vice versa. And vice, you know what I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, like, the, but, um, but to somehow require it, right? Is in my mind, it's it's, it's a little bit nauseating. Just this uh, um, conjunction of signaling elite status and doing that, you know, signaling that kind of power, but doing that by conjoining it with a very gendered appearance, right? For men, it's wearing this suit. For women, it's wearing this thing, which is, I'm sure, in, in the minds of some, more feminine and yet powerful, right? It's like. By conforming to a particular conception of of uh, of of gendered appearance, you signal seriousness. I, that makes me very uncomfortable. I find it creepy. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I agree. Um, I feel exactly the same about it. And I also think it's a uh, it's really to the discredit of the Virginia bar examiners that they take this moment of of their own power, their ability to insist on things, mm-hmm. right? Because this is a professional gateway this license, which you must obtain to pursue this livelihood in this location. Um, They ought to be, my my perspective on such a thing is, for myself as a bar examiner, I would want to be imposing the lightest possible footprint (laughs) of my own preferences this because this can easily tip over into a kind of really gross predation yeah and i don't want to be too strong about it because i like it's not up to the virginia bar to solve all of the social problems of signaling power through gendered appearance right because if you were in court like you don't have a problem with saying hey you know don't don't come in wearing a t-shirt to court even though you you know dress appropriately for court if that's the rule yeah right and you would have you would know by saying that, that men would almost always wear a suit and women would almost always wear this other thing, which is much more complicated to understand what it should be. And that's right. part of the whole problem, right? But whatever it is that is nice, quote unquote, nice, right? So you would know that would have a gendered effect, right? And your intention necessarily wouldn't be to further reinforce um, uh, gender uh, differences and gender hierarchy. That would not be your intention. Your intention is to, is this, uh, other thing that you talked about before, right, about like this, what I call like the superficial signification of a of a deeper feeling, a deeper feeling of camaraderie and group membership and importance of the occasion, right? And and again, in the abstract, I got no problem with that, right? That there should be that there are occasions where we're asked to super, to signify things superficially, right? And we do that in order to show that yeah, this is important to us, oh. right? It's just that. You know, it's, it's, to me, this is too bound up with too much other bad stuff. And I don't, but what I'm not saying, I'm not saying this is the intention of the Virginia bar examiners. No. Right. All, I think they are like, look, we have these things for court. Uh, um, 
you should dress like you're going to court. This is just, you know, don't be a slob. That's yeah. probably what's in their heads, right? But yeah. But once you try to, you know, once you try to say as a rule how that should, you, you fall into all this other stuff, yeah. right? And and I just don't think it's appropriate for the bar exam. You know, you're showing up to take an exam. I think getting people all you know, to think about what's best for them for the occasion is, is important. And so um, that's why I suggested earlier yeah. when we were talking before that the the if if a state bar examiner group is going to say anything about what people are wearing to the exam. I think it makes sense to say, although it has a vagueness problem, that you should wear clothing that is comfortable for you as a test taker so that you can do well on the test and that will not distract other test takers from their ability to do well. Yeah, but you can do that just by... I, I would just say, you know, uh, so that's what I think. Why not just say in the rules, and maybe other people have this in get, the rules. The I reason, mean, the good reason to say both is, it it gets you focused on the right consideration for yourself, and you might not you might not go through the thought process. This thing that I find very comfortable, um, but it has language on it that could distract other people. So perhaps even though it's my favorite shirt, I'm not going to wear it. Right? You actually want people to go through that second step. Yeah, but you could just do that with a general rule that says, like, you know, in the in the exam room, distracting uh, dress or behavior will subject you to removal from the exam. Okay, that's fine. That's and, just another version of what I just yeah, said. Yeah, I, I think you can just put it all in one thing. Like, just to, don't be distracting. And that's just, basically, right. you're just stating what the high-level principle here. But, right? I think, but I think saying, but you, the way you said it, which is good, right, is you included distracting dress. Or other behavior, right? Because right. the way you're dressed is one of the behaviors we care about because it has effects on other people. Yeah, and if you just said in this, this context, yeah, and I think the reason the reason that I thought well, you got so to signal that too is is that if you just say distracting behavior, like putting on clothes is a behavior that you engaged in before you came in, right? So you need to signal you need to be thinking about your behavior before you come into the room, kind of thing. Yeah, I it's I, so I'd be I curious would, to I, know if other jurisdictions have that. Right. What you just said. Because we don't know what other jurisdictions are saying. Yeah. All right, listeners. Homework. So this is what we want. <laughs> listeners. Get me. Um, <laughs> what is it? Uh, oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Send us. Did a, you forget the email address? I did. Because um, <laughs> I got excited. Even though you man the. You, you man the. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I got excited. Yeah. Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. Okay. Send us a note. If you really love the way your state tells people what they should wear to the bar exam or if you really hate it. Or if you think it's an especially great example of what you and I just described as optimal. Or if you think that, you know, our whole discussion has been full of it and you think, well, you guys are... send us a note to that effect. Yeah, send us a note. So we're going to get to letter number three. I'm beginning to think we might not get to... Oh, uh, we have to. ...to Nicholas Georgiakopoulos' paper. Oh, crap. I know. We we read it. We talked about it. Nicholas, if you're listening... We're going to get to it because listener... most Listener number three. I mean, uh, letter number three. Most of great friend of the show sent us is stuff we do not need to talk about with with everybody with everybody yeah, what a great email though huh it's wonderful gosh um, yeah and and it includes a nice segue to the way the world is a small place because he relates some of his own family background to one of the um alcoholic beverages that nicholas georgiakopoulos related to us in an email of his mm-hmm. um the mastiha from um uh, from heels program note it's uh now eleven forty eight a.m so we we we're recording at a time where we could switch over to <laughs> <laughs> but we are not <laughs> but going we're not to. going to yeah this is a coffee um, episode the, yeah i think the the 
So the two things that are that are worth sharing with our other uh, listeners, uh, one is the the fact that uh, Oslo Anthony points out, you know, a lot of students use ExamSoft while they're in law school. This is the this is the uh, test taking software that can be configured to kind of lock down your computer to promote test uh, security. So you can take an exam on computer and yet be locked out of, say, your notes or the internet or other things, yes. and that's among the other functions that it right. provides. And so uh, he points out rightly that many law students who are taking a bar exam have in their in the immediately preceding years been using this very same software to take law school exams. Right. And so another thing that one could try to take into account if you were trying to get the omniscient observer's perspective on what happened at the July 24 uh, bar exam. I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Did you just say omniscient? Yeah. Hmm. hmm. Go ahead. Go what ahead, caller. You, what did you think I should no, say? No, no, no. Go ahead. Omniscient? Go ahead. I don't want to go ahead anymore. <laughs> Look. What do you think I should have said? No, no, I, just, I, I didn't. I'd never heard it pronounced that way. Um. <laughs> If you wanted to get a comprehensive sense of what happened in the July 2014 bar exam, you, some of the students who had exam soft problems, some yeah. of the bar examinees yeah. who had exam soft problems, um, might have been less worried about it because they had experience with exam soft before. Others who had problems, it might have been the first time they were using exam soft. Ah. So this is yet another variable. And yet another kind of natural experiment. Which is yeah. all the stuff we will never know. Because you would need student-level data to test yeah. that out, and, and even then, what what would you really what would you really know? Like, was this the fourth time you've taken exam? Now, I guess if you had all these data, you could then try to do some correlations with the performance, right? Um, students who used ExamSoft for all their law school exams and who had this intensity of a problem were less affected by the problem than did. Then were students right. who never had used ExamSoft before, and this answers th this. W this would be some evidence towards answering whether students who were affected by the problem performed worse because of the problem. And then you would still be left with the secondary question: um, Did that, if that worse performance occurred in the students who were affected by the problem, uh, did it was how much was that worse performance responsible for the drop in? Um, bar right. passage rates. Right. And that's, so there, there are some multiple steps left yeah. after that. You, you said there was another thing though that he said, you said there were two things. Yeah. So the other, he raised a great question about the history of the bar exam as a sociocultural phenomenon. Yeah. And, and we got you know, we need, class elites and yeah. perhaps trying to exclude women or people of color or other. And I just don't know. It'd be great to find an historian who's studied yeah. either just professional licensing in general or yep. uh, law, uh, you know. Because so if you pursue an analogy to, as he did, to medical licensing and yeah. the attempt to exclude midwives and other what we would think of as medical related people, but maybe they weren't doctors of the right type in, according to that group at that time. And so, ah, let's come up with medical licensing systems that can focus on us and not them and blah, blah, blah. So uh, there's all kinds of historical knowledge we don't have. And it's, it, yeah, it's interesting because licensing does have like, you know, there is a, there's a good principle which supports licensing, right? And it's about competency and, and the fact that and there needs protection. to be some ex ante control and competency because consumers will not be able to ferret this out on their own. Right. Uh, 
and you have to identify the fields where that's true and you're going to want some kind of controls and some kind of ex post. We did all this. We talked about all this last yep. week. But the interesting thing is, is, is what worries you is the hidden principle, right? The hidden principle is we can have more goodies for ourselves if there are fewer of us. Right. Right. And that's. And that can, that can itself be motivated by either a thoughtlessness about consumer benefit or it can be motivated by some deeply unsavory and in fact hateful uh, efforts to exclude people based on characteristics yeah, unrelated I mean, to their abilities right. Ex- exclusion in that kind of context can just be I'll, we'll make more money if there are fewer of us and i don't really care who else is in it so long as i'm one of them uh the other is that this can be yet another aspect of social control yeah and, and group control and um yeah to the detriment of everybody. To the detriment so. of, yeah. Or the, or the detriment of at least the outgroups, but but ultimately to everybody. I think that's right. one of the lessons here. Yeah. So that's, that's uh, so I that think is his, a great question. I think it's a great I question. And I don't know the answer and you don't know it either. And it would be great to have the answer. You said you did, you did some quick Googling this morning. Yeah, just but I couldn't you really find anything that was, that seemed on point. So yeah. sorry about that. Yeah, but that was very quick research. We should, I, I'd love to get someone on the show about that. We, so I should say too, this is another chance to email us and let us know. You know, boy, there's a lot to email us about this week. Like, do you know about the history of the bar exam? Have well, you seen a great piece about it? Do you know someone who's an expert in it? Yeah. Let us know. We've had some other topic suggestions. We still need to do that death penalty show from uh, Twitter listener Josh. Uh, that was a great suggestion. Mm-hmm. We have uh, – you had an email a while back from someone who was volunteering to be part of a show about, like, law libraries. You remember that oh, from yeah, way back? Oh, information. Yeah, and and if that's you, by the way, and I forget the name of the person, you know, we will – we're gonna we're still interested in that. But, you know, yep. it's like putting all these things in the pipeline and finding yeah, the right way hard. to do them. So in general, in addition to telling us whether you like these shows with just Joe and me – or, or you really prefer the shows with guests, and you're not going to hurt our feelings. Just let us know. Give it to us straight. Um, also, let us know what, you know, if you've got some topics you'd like to hear about, let us know. We can't guarantee anything because we've got to find the right guest and we've got to find yep. the right level of things to, to talk about. And that isn't always so easy on our end. But but please let us know what you'd like to hear. We really do want to know because uh, we want to give the people what they want. Right, Joe? Yeah. That's, they can inspire great things. Letter number four. Is it, there one? No. Oh, boy. Letter number three. You can't build a pyramid of comedy with three Oops. levels. Got to have five. Well, you wanted They're to reach five. back to the Nicholas Georgiakopoulos paper. Yeah, boy. So, so one of the things that so we read. Um, I think I don't know if we read it or we referred to it. Uh, was it last week or we two weeks ago? We talked about a letter that he had. To, we talked about an email that he sent us. Yes, which included um, some really great tips on some uh, mature beverages. Mm-hmm. But in that email, which we he, still have to get to, by the way, we gotta we gotta have an evening episode where we can pour some of these. Agreed. Yeah. He also. Uh, passed along a uh, reference to a paper which is on SSRN. We'll link to it. Yeah, we're going to link this up. Link to. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful, uh, I think it's a wonderful paper. Uh, why don't you say a few words about it? And yeah, so, so it, 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 it kind of, what it tries, to, what, what it does is it, 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 it says something about this, about how we should go, how we should think about in the context of a trial evidence about say dna matches and in this particular a dna match what what does a dna match mean where the um uh where there are a lot of potential subjects uh, subjects and or suspects or was it just one suspect there I, but, but 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 there's a match right and the chance of finding a match is like really low so so what are the what what are the you know what what kind of evidence is that and um there are two things i think we wanted to mention here um, one was this whole idea of how probability should be used in law goes back to a couple of episodes we had near the beginning right. of this year, I think. And, 
uh, one of my favorite episodes we did. I think it was that sacrifice episode where we, mm. I think, talked about Nicholas's mm-hmm. email there, and I made that little a probability chart, and we talked about how many guilty and innocent yep. people are, and how we should think about probability in terms of what reasonable doubt means. And then we had uh, an episode after that um, uh, uh, about the role of that kind of evidence in law. But, you know, go, yeah, go ahead. In the current yeah. paper, he as a prelude to right the DNA match. He talks about uh, working through uh, a test that is 90% accurate uh, right. for a disease that affects only 1% of the population. And the fact that we might have, we might stumble into bad intuitions or bad guesses right. about how, how this actually plays out. Um, and what was so powerful to me was the visualizations that he created to help make quite apparent even to an untutored individual um someone who like me isn't around uh highly complex statistical analyses on a regular basis and this is and you can see it with the with the 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 medical test example which is not actually highly complex i mean the math is super easy it's just multiplication but on the other hand it's a little bit counterintuitive yes and if you don't do it on a regular if you don't do these calculations on a regular basis you don't have tutored intuitions about how these things work Right, And what's great about the visualization is it gets into a single image the importance of tracking not only the true positives and true negatives, but the false positives and false negatives. And it gets it all into a single visual field in a way that is extremely helpful and extremely powerful. And I love these visualizations in the paper. And I think people should check out the paper for that reason alone. Because it is awesome. Yeah, so it was the, you know, this is the old example. And you can look at the visualization and see, so you've got a disease that affects one person out of 100. And you can actually, like, put a little, dot. he's got, like, a little grid and a little dot right. next to that, for that, to represent a, that one ten, person. Ten, it's 10 batches of 100 dots. So you've got 1,000 dots. And it's, a, and, and it's a test that, um, if it comes back positive, right, then, um, uh, Let's see. How does this work? Well, it's a ninety percent accurate test. So yeah, in, but what does that mean? I forget how he sets it up. It's very important how yeah, you state this. It is. The, I, I think people. This is exactly the sort of thing you do not want to do on a podcast, right? which is explore <laughs> something that 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 deserves and rewards the sort of precision that he provides. So I think what we need to do is we need to simply encourage people. It's a short paper. It's a fun paper. Go look at it. Go look at the visualizations, read what he has to say. You will, it will make you a better person <laughs> Well, it's a, <laughs> because it's, it's a right. very thoughtful and interesting topic. And the, the way, the general challenge, how do we educate people in a jury or in any official decision makers or just people trying to understand social policy, right? How do you educate, how do we educate ourselves about probabilistic events and actual events and how to get them to talk to each other seems to me yeah so can i try sure all right so imagine you've got a grid 10 by 10 100 people right one of them actually has a disease you've got a test that has a 10 percent false positive rate yes 10 percent. so 10 percent of the time uh it will read positive whether you have the disease or not Okay. Well, it will read positive even when you do not have the disease. And whether you can be more precise. Yeah, not whether okay. or not. It's you actually don't have it. Fair, fair. 
good. Yes, we had. Imagine that's there's why no, it's called a false yeah, positive. Imagine there's no false negative rate, zero percent false negative. So, okay, okay. So you got a hundred people. One of them has the disease. Okay, that person will uh, will be flagged as having the disease by the test, right? As a positive true, test, as a true positive, will be a true positive. But from their perspective, all they'll know is that they're a positive. Yes. Right. Um, look at the other ninety nine people, and I'm going to do some rounding here. How many of them will show positive under the test? Probably about ten. Yeah. Right. Ten percent of the ninety nine nine point nine. So it's about ten. Right. So. If you just get those 11 people in the room, right, and you say you've all, are, uh, you've all been flagged positive by the test, but you know that only 1% of the people, only one person in that group is positive, right? What are the chances that any person who is, uh, that any one of those 11 people who have been flagged positive by the test actually has the disease? It's very low. You've been told that the, that the test is 90% accurate in the sense that only 10% of the time will it show that you have the disease when in fact you do not have the disease. And yet, a, once, you've, once you have the positive result, your chances actually of having the disease, right, are only 1 out of 11. Yeah. Which only is about fair, 9%. Which is quite low, but your intuition might be exactly the opposite. Well, it's 90% accurate. Right. So there's a 90% chance I have the disease if I have a positive result. Right. And that's wrong. So, Backwards. so what's interesting about his paper, right? So it's not just wrong, it's upside down. Yeah. The math of it is, 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 is easy. It's, you know, it's just well, multiplication, one, but, but it's hard to get your head around. And what, and, and what interested you in particular about the paper, Joe, and I think I found interesting too, is that when you actually see the grid, right? When he, when you see the picture, Right? Of the dots. Of the dots. You see, you see a 10 by 10 grid, 100 squares, and there are, a, you know, maybe, I, I forget how he does it, but you can imagine 11 dots in there reflecting all of the people who right. got positive results. And, and he, you know and that only one of them the actually has are, it. Some of the dots are blank and some are shaded. Yeah. And so, and he walks you through and it's just a very, like, once you see it, you're like, oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> did I ever tell you this? I don't know if I did this on the show too, but um, I, this, and, and this is a story I heard secondhand about uh, about a mathematician who was getting to be very famous for producing certain results mm. and was just the person in that area and, and was seeing things and I, I don't I don't know what the field was that that other people were not seeing, right? And as they are presenting something and someone asks a question, you know, uh, you know, well what about this case or what about that case? And and, and this guy's he's just brilliant, knows all these things, right? And the person says, let me think about that for a second. Starts to go to the board and writes stuff down, which is an example, right? Starts to work through an example. And once people see that example written down, then all of a sudden, all the light bulbs in the room go off. And all of a sudden, the guy's not special anymore. Because people have, you know, so imagine it's a, imagine an abstract field about, say, shapes or something like that, or a manifold or some abstract field, right? Where the, all the results that you get, you have to prove, you know, like you do a prove, you start with some premises and you have these little techniques and you do, 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 do you know, you, you right. fill them in. If you don't have any good examples in your head of, you know, say I'm trying to prove something about cubes, okay, or about polyhedra or some shapes, right? Um, if I only know the abstract characteristics of those things and try to prove things about them, I might have a hard time because I don't necessarily have a good intuition of what's probably true and what's probably false and what's mm. really going on. Right. Whereas if I have in my head a really fixed idea of a cube and I think about its characteristics, then I can kind of guess what might be true. And I can certainly rule out very quickly what's not true because I just think about that example. Well, for this particularly abstract field, this guy had a great example in his head, right? 
And once other people had that physical example, I say physical, but of course it's a little bit abstract, but they had an actual concrete example of the kind of object under study, like everybody could make this kind of progress. That was the special sauce, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you mentioned um, your reaction to Nicholas's paper about how revelatory, it's not that you didn't know this before. I know, I know that you knew this kind of stuff about statistics before, but, but how it made it obvious why it's so like seeing those 11 dots, knowing that only one of them has the disease, it makes you connect it together. Like seeing the picture, right? Yeah. Uh, it's funny how that presentation of the material and the, and the concretization of it, because after all, the 11 dots is just an example. It's an example of a population of a hundred people, right? right? So seeing a concrete example of this thing working, makes you realize why it's true. It kind of goes back to our talk a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, where I mentioned, uh, um, uh, um, uh, uh, boy, uh, the idea of the book proof, like Paul Erdish and the, and, and the book that had the real reasons for things, right? Mm-hmm. Like somehow having an example, it's not the, re- the, the reason something is true is not because it's true for this particular example, but the example can make it feel true. It can make it, it can, it can show you the, the how the, abstract reasons that you're giving for something manifest, right? And that makes it feel like it's right, right? And and after all, I think that most, what we think of as logical conclusions from things, right? The Most of the reason we can, that we conclude that that, are, that we have something which is logically true is because of an emotion associated with logic. Right, so it's, it's giving the emotional force. Exactly. Because the logical, the, the logical force alone stripped of its emotion yeah, doesn't have the same feeling of of doesn't have the same oomph. Yeah, the emotion is the oomph, and because you, you say you go through it, you go through the math, and you're like, I guess that's true. Yeah, that step is right. That step is right. We do this with the the example of the uh the, that he gave of the of the ten percent of the ninety percent accuracy, right? Okay, nine point nine times this point one. Yeah, I get that. I get that. You actually draw out a grid, and it and it makes it. You know, if the emotion didn't get stuck in with you from the analytical steps, it'll get struck in, uh, stuck in with you with the geomet- with the uh, kind of geometric picture. Right. Here's another example that he, I that mean, he gave. And it was the way it made the false positives like light up. You you couldn't ignore them anymore. Yeah, they're there in the room with you. You're looking at ten other people, and you know that only one of you actually has the disease. Right. Right. So you're like, wow, this ninety percent accurate test is really pretty crappy. And <laughs> you blow that up to a million, you know, to ten million, to a hundred million people. Right. Right. And now every one of those people represents a million people. Right. Uh, a million people have the disease. Ten million don't. I'm like, boy, that's you know, there are a lot of people who have it, but a lot of people don't. Or, or you reduce the probability of having right. the disease, or, or the it, uh, and, and anyway, so it a very rare disease. Even if you have a very sensitive test. Um, or, or a, a highly accurate test. I, you know, I'm not going to think of it while I'm talking on the radio here. <laughs> uh, precision and accuracy, you know, this whole thing. But uh, you're going to get a lot of false positives. Okay, so uh, I wanted to mention the other thing that he that he mentioned in the paper, the other example that um, I always have found fascinating that um, I think is somewhat famous now. So all of our listeners probably have heard of it. This is the Monty Hall problem. This is the um, from let's make a deal. You've got three doors, mm-hmm. right? You know this thing, right? Yeah. Should we talk about it? Because I think this is another instance in which you can, if you want, sure. In which visualizing it actually helps. So, and yeah. uh, we a couple more minutes, right? Right. Uh, so the problem is, as everybody knows, you've got you got three doors. You don't know what's behind them, and you get to choose three doors. And there's a big pro- you get to choose one door. Yeah. What did I say? From among the three. Yeah. Did I say choose three doors? Yeah. Yeah. That that would make it easy. <laughs> Choose all three. <laughs> right. that's, um, that's, you have to choose that's, a that's, door that's, from that, among the three. That's Oprah's version of let's make a deal. Right. 
you get to choose a door and you get to, you get to choose all three doors. Okay, so yeah, you choose one door among the three. And what's what you know is that behind one door is a fabulous prize. And behind two other doors is like there's like a donkey or something else. Some stuff you don't want. Okay. Do you remember this from Lights Make a Deal? Like there were some chickens behind one door. Maybe there was like an old tire. Right. I don't know. I don't know what was. But basically there's no prize behind two doors. There's a fabulous prize behind one door. And the whole thing is like I got to pick which one, right? So you pick door number one. Or you, you pick a door, right? And then, and you know this happens every time. Monty does this every time. Every time you've chosen one, he goes in and he says, let me, let me, let me give you a chance here. And he opens one of the other doors and shows that there's not a prize behind that door. And okay. so now there are only two doors, the one you picked and another door. Right. Right. And you know that he's going to show you because he does this every time. He, show, he always shows, and in fact, it's a rule that he shows you, right? One of the doors that has nothing behind it. And it's not the one you picked. So now there are just two doors left, yours and that other door. Right. Can and I the stop question you is, there? yes. Given the structure of this situation, mm-hmm. um, it is the case that no matter which door you pick, yes, he will be able to reveal to you right. a door behind which there is no prize. Exactly. That will always be the case. Yes. By dwell- so if you picked yeah. the door that had the prize behind it, mm-hmm. there will be two from which he can pick one, which will not have the prize. Exactly. If you picked one of the two that has no prize, there will still be yeah. one left without a prize for him to pick. See, now you're getting into the visualization, which helps you understand what you should do. But go yeah. ahead. Yeah. So it will, so it will always be the case that yeah. no matter what you pick, yeah. he will have a way to show you a door behind which there is nothing. Yeah. And that's what he does. Monty he shows always you does it. He doors. always shows you a door. And now there are two doors. Now there are two doors. There's the door one that you picked. One of them has a prize. One and, of them and there's so door number. He's let's say he's opened door number three. There's nothing behind it. There's door number one and door number two. And now Monty says, "You know what? I'm going to let you switch if you would like. Which door do you want? Now there are two doors. Now you're thinking to yourself. You're thinking to yourself, two doors. It could be behind either of them, right? What are the chances it's behind mine? What's the other chance? And the naive answer is it doesn't matter. It's like a coin flip. There are two doors. The prize is behind one door, 50% chance of either one. Therefore, you know, it doesn't matter. Whereas the true answer is you should always switch. You should always <laughs> elect to switch. And uh, I, had a, I had a math professor. No, explain. explain. I had a math, well, let me just set it up. I had a math professor who, who explained this and, and, and who um, – uh, it was, he, he loved this problem. We always talked about it because actually the way it was originally described in a certain column, it was, there were some problems with it. And, mm. and it's very important how you set the problem up. Okay. Because if you don't know that he's always going to open a bad door, then the whole thing messes up, right? So, uh, um, and he, descri- he described, he taught the uh, combinatorics and... Um, what sense would it make for him to show you what's behind the good door? I mean, that wouldn't make no sense. Right, but you have to... state the drama of the show is Of that- course, but you have to state the problem precisely. If you okay. don't state the problem precisely, then y- you don't get this answer. But, so he, he would say it like this, like there are lots of things, there, there, there are lots of things in the world that have two possible outcomes, right? It is not the case that just because there are two outcomes, that those outcomes are equally likely... <laughs> This is just a basic undergrad class, right? Just right. trying to teach people kind of principles of, of thinking about outcomes. And for example, today I'm going to hit, either I'll be hit by a meteor or I will not be. It does not follow that it is, I have a 50% chance of being hit by a meteor, right? <laughs> just because there are two doors does not mean that each is uh, equally likely to have the good thing behind them, right? You have to know more about the world, right? right? And what we know here, right, is that, when I, uh, the setup of the problem is such, uh, imagine I choose door number one. I'm always going to choose door number one, let's say. And now 
the question is, is the prize behind door number one or is it behind door number two or door number three? Imagine I got the chance to pick two doors, right? So, and I think it helps to imagine these as physical things. Yeah. I've got three blocks, right? One of the blocks represents great rewards. The others represent nothing, right? And someone comes to you and says, um, yeah, randomly, there's a one-third chance is behind either of these blocks. Either of these blocks has the great reward. Okay. Do you want to pick three of them? Yeah. They're all equally likely to have right. the reward. And I ask you, would you like to have, um, would you like to pick two blocks or one block? What would you say, Joe? Two. Two, of course, right? Okay. So you'd like to pick Cause two. Because I, I have two, a, th- a two-thirds chance. That's right. At that point. That's right. And so that's how this works, right? So my original choice is there's a one-third chance it's behind it, right? Yep. What are the chances that it's behind one of the other two blocks? Two-thirds. Right. Right? I also know that I'm going to be able to choose those two blocks through the mechanism of the Monty Hall problem. Monty is always going to reveal a block that's not it. Right. Mm-hmm. So what? Are well, the, he's always going to reveal one of the two that isn't it. That's right. There may be they may they may both not be it. Right. Because one third of the time I'm going to lose. Right. But if I play my if I play my cards right, I'm going to win two thirds of the time. The way that you think of the way you can visualize this really helps. Right. That 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 basically the problem is choosing block one or choosing blocks two and three. Right. And you can choose essentially choose blocks two and three by committing to switch at the beginning. You know that you're going to switch. Yeah. You're laughing. What? Well, because it still it doesn't feel it doesn't have the same oomph to me as the first scenario we were talking about with the false positives for the test testing the disease. Yeah. Um. But but because imagine. it does seem like when you once he once he takes one of the doors away by showing you there's mm-hmm. nothing behind it, and says you can switch if you want, mm-hmm. you don't have to switch. To me, it does really feel more like a fresh stab at a one and two chance. No. Oh, so think about it this way. Imagine there are a thousand blocks and you get to choose one. And the procedure is that among the remaining 999, Monty will reveal 998 blocks that are worthless. And now he says, do you want to switch? Now, again, in the abstract, I get how you're, but imagine these as physical things. Imagine the shell game, let's say, right? And the ball is under one shell. Okay, and imagine in your mind, think of it, think of the picture, a thousand shells lined up from one end of the table, way on down the block to the other end of the table. And he says, pick one, right? And here's what I'm going to do. And you know what he's going to do. He's going to reveal all of the 998 shells that don't have the ball under it that you didn't pick, right? And so you picked one shell and now there's one other shell. Would you switch? I think that feels right that you would switch in advance. Not really. What what are the what are the what <laughs> are the chances? Because all I know now is it's definitely under one of these two. I may have picked correctly. I may not. Right, but <laughs> it's it's under one of these two. It's not under any of the other ones. But does the chance that it's the, does the chance that your initial guess was right? Does that feel like suddenly more right to you than it did when there were a thousand shells? Right, your chances of having picked right are one out of a thousand. You you know. To an almost certainty, and, and if I increase the number of shells, this only becomes more obvious. You know to an almost certainty that the ball is under one of the other shells. And Monty is doing you the favor of flipping over all the ones it's not under. Imagine this. See, this is what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> but imagine I, this I physically. Underst- imagine it physically, and I think it makes total sense. I understand that it is that the odds were very much against me when I made my initial choice oh that I gosh. got it correct, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, because there were 999 other places for it to be. Right. 
and I just happen to choose one of mm-hmm. those. And yes, so it's virtually certain that it was under one of the others and not under the white bear. Imagine he doesn't turn any over and he just says to you, Joe, do you want to stick with the one you have or should, or do you want me to let you win if it's under one of the other 999? And I would have stuck with the one I had because they all seem like the same guess. Well, no, 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 no. I I can't believe you would just say that. No, no. Listen, listen carefully. So here's the setup. He lets me pick another shell. No. So I get two. No, 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 no. No, he lets you. So he says, okay, you've picked, you've picked shell number one, Joe. You're a rational guy. You realize that number one is as likely as any other thing, right? No, actually what I would do is I would pick number three. Oh boy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So you pick number three. Yeah. Would you like to stick with that or would you like me to let you win if the ball is under any of the other shells? In other words, I'm going to turn over all the other shells and if the ball is under any of them, you win. Would you like that? Would you like to switch? Of course I would switch. And so. Because I'm getting 999 chances to win as opposed to one chance right. to win. Right. And so what if what if instead of that, he says, you know what, I'm going to let you switch if you want to, if it's under either of these other shells. But just to make it more interesting, I'm going to turn over all the ones it's not under first. Yeah. And says, do you want, and, and says, do you want to switch? <laughs> Before he turns them over, he says, look, do you want to take all of I my- understand yeah. why probabilistically right. I should switch. But I also think it is very hard to emotionally feel that it's, anything other than okay i now have a new choice to make but what i'm saying is yes i get that i get that and it seems like a one in two chance but by transforming that abstract thing into something you know where you increase the number of shells where you see them and you see that i think it makes it easier to appreciate the emotional rightness of the thing and not just the logical rightness of the thing yeah but i still wouldn't switch you would switch though no i wouldn't if there were a thousand shells if there were a thousand shells and he turned over 998 mm-hmm. and I could stick with the one I first chose or pick the other one, I definitely would not switch. I can I, I, I cannot be- <laughs> <laughs> because no. it might be under the one I picked initially. Okay. So let me ask you this. Yeah. You might get hit by a meteor when you walk out. <laughs> it doesn't make it. F- oh. so, let me, here, so here, so let me ask let me, you to imagine. Let, no, no, no. Let no, me you ask you to imagine. Second. Second. No, you shut up. I, I, Cause Be quiet this for is a, a very important thing with our friendship because I need to know this. This is important information. <laughs> this is important information I have. What I want to know is if instead of a fabulous prize, he were holding a knife to my throat and he says, <laughs> unless you pick the shell with a ball under it, your friend, you know, bites the dust. Here, would you still stick with your before, initial guess? Before answering that, oh what I want to, what I want to, what I want to say is this is a whole an, other scenario. Yeah. What if you, what if, what if this is what happened? Um, he simply likes to do, he's OCD and he likes to do things in thousands, right? So he, he sets up the thousand shells. Yeah. He puts the ball under one shell. Mm-hmm. He then takes 998 shells off the table. Yeah. I'm nowhere around. I haven't done a thing. I haven't participated in any way. Mm-hmm. Then he opens the door and he lets me in and there are two shells on the table and he says, there's a ball under one shell. You get to pick. Turn it over and the ball is under the shell. You win. Right. Right. I have a one in two shot. Of course you do. Of course. At that point, you have a one in two shot. And the choice I make before under your scenario, your hypothetical, Mm -hmm. doesn't cause the ball to be under one or the other. Right. Oh, my gosh. So nor is that true in my in my hypothetical. I'm just picking and I've got a one in two chance. Let me ask you this. If you could see through the shell and you knew where the ball was, (laughs) would you switch? (laughs) Do you you're, see what I'm saying? You're funny. You see what I'm saying? I mean, you, look, the, so the problem is you're not ascribing this, any reality to what I'm saying. None at all. None at all. <laughs> because uh, 
because in, in the scenario where he removed like you come in you don't know which uh you don't know which shell was part of the set that he was intentionally um removing shells from right so in the scenario uh the, the actual problem right you have segregated a shell he will not turn over that one the other shell he will not turn over right? and he won't turn it over without respect to what's under it right the other shell he won't turn over is the one that actually has the ball under it or if you happen to have chosen the one with the ball under it a random shell Correct. right and that bit of information like knowing that means that your choice is essentially choose stick choosing your shell or the other 999 shells or we can we can make it as yeah. big as you want and we can make it avogadro's number of shells <laughs> and in the, <laughs> which, which i think is 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd, 23rd is it yeah. not yeah okay um or the yeah. just mole, let's i want to be precise about this or it could be a sextillion shells which is as it turns out i think the number of stars in the universe so found that out this week i have no trouble with the fact that right mathematically the only thing that makes any sense at all is to switch to pick the other shell i get it so would you switch i guess i would but i would do it knowing that i really didn't feel like i should <laughs> all right that, that's what i want to get to in the example where if the ball is under the shell that you pick you know uh in the end um, i'm gonna the, be the guy, really the, upset the guy, the guy lets me live i mean you know it, i want to make sure that in that scenario you do the logical thing <laughs> This could be useful in the future. Who knows what we're going to run into? Joe? I would pick, look, I would say, yeah, fine, I'll pick the other one. Mm-hmm. But it could be that the ball is actually under the shell under my hand, and <laughs> that will make me very sad. I, this is some kind of loss aversion theory. Do you understand the, what I'm saying? I, this is, you're, this is, a, uh, because emotionally, it feels like, well, I have one in yeah. two chance. Maybe the thing I picked originally was right. Is that because of loss aversion? I don't know why. Well, I'm just telling you what I feel. Yeah, this is very depressing because I was trying to make your I was trying to make your argument about how important the the uh, the visual and the physical context of the thing could be to feeling the rightness of something rather than just yes. appreciating the and rightness of something. And sometimes that will work, and sometimes it won't. But I'm saying this gets you closer. Imagining the ball under shells. Yes. Right. And imagining and the you know, thousand shells and no yes exactly oh. and you just see it right i think if you see it it's better than if you, someone just describes it because if they just describe yes. it you're likely and to I'm make the mistake it. of thinking I you're really equally likely to imagining the shells right. i want you to know that mm-hmm. oh boy should we call it yeah. what, letter number four <laughs> why that, do you keep mentioning that because I, I really want to get to letter number five because that's it? the pyramid of comedy oh, oh, as yeah, a tribute yeah, to yeah, letterman yeah. i think i feel like we should have a tribute to letterman I'm done. All right.